0: For our scripture lesson this morning, we'll be looking to John chapter 16, continuing where Pastor Chris left off. John chapter 16, uh, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 33. Essentially, this passage of scripture uh, ends uh, essentially what is called the farewell disc- discourse proper. Uh, Jesus is still going to talk a little bit, but next, well, actually not next week, actually quite a, quite a while from now, uh, we'll be looking at John 17, the high priestly prayer. So but these verses in the farewell discourse proper where Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples uh, before that uh, fateful day. So let's look to John chapter 16, starting at verse 16, reading down to the end of the chapter, verse 33. A little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what is he what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the father. His disciples said, "Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figures of speech, figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the (laughs) Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's the word of the Lord, let us pray together. Our Lord, we thank you this morning for your great word, both for its power and for its clarity. So now, Lord, as we look to the words of your son, that may bring clarity to our lives, may bring, uh, even as Jesus said, bring us peace and joy in this life. Bless, Lord, the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Once you are uh, roughly four, kid, you know, f- four kids in to having a family, you have, you've heard Daniel Tiger enough that all the songs from Daniel Tiger are etched in your brain and you have no choice but to repeat and sing along with Daniel Tiger. Now, if you don't know what Daniel Tiger is because your kids aren't small enough and maybe the cartoon wasn't around, essentially Daniel Tiger is, uh, if you remember from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, it's the little puppets that he used to play with. And those puppets basically come to life in cartoon form, and uh, they made a cartoon out of it, I guess. Mr. Rogers got too old after a while, so... But that's, that's Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Now, it, it's a decent show. Uh, it's a good show. It's a show that we're perfectly fine with letting our kids watch and listen to in the background. Uh, but the show, it, it teaches kids various things. One of, the, one of the things it actually does, I would say, fairly well, I mean, no show is perfect, is it helps kids with their, say, shall we say, emotional intelligence. So one of the songs, and it does it by song a lot of times, so when a kid is angry, f- for instance, one of the songs the uh, Daniel Tiger sings is, if you're feeling mad, and you want to roar? Take a deep breath and count to four. I don't. I don't know any kid that actually counts to four when they're angry. But the song is nice, and it helps the kid to slow down when you're angry. But one of the other songs that the uh, that Daniel Tiger does is a song about uh, essentially about anxiety that a child would have when a parent leaves. And so the song goes through a bunch of different questions. Uh, when I when I go to school, will you come back to get me? When you when the parents go on a date, will you come back? And the song, it's, uh, it's very repetitive, but it's supposed to be helpful for kids. And the song basically says, grown-ups come back to you. Grown-ups come back, they do. Grown-ups come back. I'm not going to sing it. You all should have it in your head what it actually sounds like. But it's a way for kids to repeat the song over and over again, that if when the parents leave, whether dropping them off somewhere, or the parents go on a date, or something along those lines, and grandparents or whoever is watching, it was the idea don't be so anxious. It's OK. Grown ups, they come back. Well, to a certain degree, this is what Jesus is prepping his disciples for uh, at the end of the farewell discourse. He is both prepping them for the reality that is going to come. I'm going to leave. Uh, but he's also pr- prepping them on how they can handle their, shall we say, emotional intelligence. The fact that he's going to leave, but Jesus indeed is going to come back. So at some point during this meal, this is the conversation that Jesus has. Now, the disciples, they are kind of putting together both the immediate context of what Jesus just said. A little while, you won't see me. Then a little while after that, you will see me. They're putting the immediate context of the conversation. But they're also putting other things that Jesus has said at previous parts of the conversation of the evening, because they add this point in verse 17 where it says when Jesus says, I'm going to go back to the father and they're they're bewildered. What does he mean by all this? What does Jesus mean by saying, in a little while, you won't see me, and then in a little while, you will see me? It's this bewilderment that the disciples have, but they're also combining, I would say, kind of the the last three years of the life they've had with Jesus during his public ministry, because Jesus essentially has been hinting hinting at this idea of what's going to happen to him in the near future That he's going to leave, he's going to be crucified, death is coming to Jesus, and the reality is the disciples, being who they are, are still quite unsure about what Jesus means. The reason they are unsure, which is understandable from their viewpoint, is a a dead Messiah does not fit in their categories of life. Death to Messiah is not supposed to happen, so Jesus is saying these things and they're unsure Because Jesus is a good God, because he's gracious and merciful, he's going to lead them through and explain to them what does he mean by saying a little while, a little while, and a little while. Now, we have to be honest that it's difficult for us. We'll talk about a little bit of that toward the end of the sermon. But there's a little bit of difficulty that we have with reading these texts because we know exactly what Jesus is saying. We're post the resurrection. We're post the ascension of Jesus Christ. We kind of know how the story plays out. And so sometimes it's difficult for us to read the stories in the Gospels, read how Jesus is prepping the disciples for his coming crucifixion and arrest and everything. And it makes it difficult because we already know what's going to happen. But we do have to kind of get in the mind of Jesus's disciples at the time. Death to a Messiah is not supposed to happen. And the man that they have seen, that they even say, say later, has come from God. They've seen him do miracles. They've seen him teach with authority, unlike the scribes, as it says in the other Gospels. And so for him to die just doesn't match. Jesus helps them, and he uses para, para, parabolic language, shall we say, to prep them both both, but to also answer their question about what is going to happen in a little while. So Jesus uses this parabolic, parabolic language of a woman who will give birth who goes through sorrow. Women, when they give birth, go through anguish and pain and sorrow. But the point that Jesus is making to them through this example in his language is that the sorrow is temporary, but the joy that a mother receives once the baby is in their hands is vastly more permanent than the anguish they've gone through. Joke may be that God makes babies cute so that women forget about all the pain they've gone through and they do it multiple times. Sometimes you look at women and you're You must be crazy. I've I've seen the pain you've gone through, and you're gonna do it again. Why? It's because what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, yeah, because that sorrow, the, the pain and the difficulty, and obviously during a period of time where there would have been real sorrow, the medical technology wasn't as it is today so sometimes the baby might not be living and so there's great sorrow and there's great anticipation about what child am I going to receive that sorrow ends when the mother is holding that child in their arms now every mother knows this every father knows this too because no one's going to admit it but every man cries at least sheds a tiny tear and the baby comes Even if you didn't experience the pain, you've watched your wife go through that pain for nine months and you there's a certain pain you feel, but it's not exactly like theirs. And you can't say that to them because your pain means absolutely nothing to the one who's been carrying a baby for nine months. But the joy that a mother receives is incomparable to the sorrow they have gone through during the period of birthing a child. Jesus uses this example, but Jesus is actually pointing to something much more than just a simple example that a mother having a child, the pain and the sorrow and the anguish is vastly temporary. Jesus is actually pointing to him as the Messiah. The language of a mother giving birth is not only an example, but it's language that's used of the Messiah in the Old Testament prophets. Particularly here, I think Jesus is uh, speaking of Isaiah chapter 26, and I'm not going to read all of it, but it's roughly about 15 or 16 verses. The prophet Isaiah basically says that there's going to be a great change in emotion in God's people as they go from writhing in pain, the pain of the difficulty of being overrun by other nations. There's going to be a change in emotion as they go from being overrun by other nations to now having the joy of birth in their lives and in their hearts as the Messiah comes and provides salvation for his people. Jesus is using the example in a very pedantic way, but he's also pointing to something greater that the disciples at the very least should have known what Jesus was saying that the Messiah Messiah has come and he will bring great salvation to you. And all the sorrow and the anguish and the pain, particularly as the people of Israel have experienced over decades and centuries long, when the Messiah comes, and he has, the salvation that he brings brings great joy. There's another short little change of language in verse 22 that I also think, think brings great joy to disciples if they heard it right, but we hear it. Many times Jesus had said over the first couple of verses in the verse we read, you will see me again. I'll leave, but you will see me again. You will see me again. And then in verse 22, he says, I will see you again. A slight change. It might not seem that great, but I think there's something there that Jesus is constantly talking to the disciples, and he says, You'll see me, you'll see me, I will see you again. The pronouns change because now Jesus knows the anguish that the disciples will be in from the time of Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. They're not going to know what's going to happen. The one that they had followed for three years during public ministry, the one they thought that was the one to bring salvation to the people of Israel, they're going to be bewildered and confused. But Jesus says, I will come and find you and see you again. There's great joy to know that even when we are bewildered and confused, that Jesus comes and he looks for us in the midst of our difficulty. The only example I can really think of, but I think it's a good one at least, and most of you guys know Pastor Donnie, some of you, came after but that's fine he was our pastor before pastor chris he baptized our first three children and pastor chris baptized josie but there was a line that donnie said and i still remember and i probably remember for the rest of my life when he baptized our children all of our kids were young we became presbyterians late so they weren't all infants uh, journey and ian were already standing and walking around but he said these kids are not going to remember this day they were all too young i think journey was only like four They're never going to remember this day. They're not going to remember the water that hit them. But it's more important that God never forgets. That change of language to think that baptism is about what we remember. And Donnie pointing, I remember this, Donnie pointing to reality. No, it's not about what they remember. It's that God never forgets the baptism he's done to your children. I think that's the example, the only example I can really think of that connects to what Jesus is doing here. He tells the disciples, you'll see me, you'll see me. But even more important, when I return. When I resurrect, I'll come find you, and I will see you again. To know that Jesus finds his disciples, as they are vastly confused about what would take place after the death of Jesus, brings great joy to his people. As we continue, Jesus connects this great word of joy with prayer. At la- the very least, the language of prayer. At verse 24, Jesus says, Ask and you'll receive that your joy, your joy will be full. Jesus is using the language of prayer to talk about more than just prayer, even though we'll get into that a little bit. He's using the language of prayer to discuss the great relationship that the disciples and all of God's people, but the disciples will have with the triune God post the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we do have to go over some difficulties before we get to the great joy that Jesus promises in prayer. Now, the first problem, Jesus says in verse 23, he says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Plainly reading it, it sounds like the disciples are never going to either speak to Jesus again or ask Jesus anything. Which then means he's not going to pray or that the disciples won't pray. But that's not what Jesus is actually stating. So we got to take care of the first problem. So Jesus is not saying the disciples will never pray to him or speak to him or ask anything of Him. The point that Jesus is making is post the resurrection. when the spirit comes and, as Jesus says, teaches them all things. The resurrection opens up the eyes of the disciples so they understand all the bewildering things that Jesus has said previously. It'll all finally make sense after the resurrection. And so what Jesus is saying, he's not talking necessarily about prayer in verse 23. What he's really saying is a time's going to come this period when I will come again and see you during this period of time. You won't have to ask me anything. All the confusing statements I have made to you, all these three years of public ministry. And you have been confused after the resurrection. It's like your eyes will be open. You won't have to ask me anything about what I meant all this time. Their eyes have been opened. You can even think about like the Jesus on the road to Damascus in Luke 24. It was after the resurrection and the breaking of bread. Their eyes were open and their hearts were ready to receive all that God had for them. This is what Jesus is saying. So take care of problem number one. Jesus is not saying that the disciples should not or will not ever pray. Rather, what he's saying is post the resurrection, you won't be confused anymore. The veil, even as Renee had kind of said, talked about early in Sunday school, the veil will be lifted from the disciples eyes. And all that he had been going through will be clear to them. The second problem we have to kind of fix, not shall fix, but talk about is verse 26. Jesus says in that day, meaning post the resurrection, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf. Now, we're all good Bible readers. So that means this sounds like a contradiction. Is Jesus saying he won't intercede for his people? No, that's not what he meant. It's clear from 1 John chapter 2 and other places, particularly in Paul and Romans, that Jesus is our great intercessor. He's the one who prays to the Father on our behalf. Even the Spirit almost takes all of our prayers like smoke and incense and brings it up to God. So we know that what Jesus is not saying is I'm never going to intercede for you. This is it. Rather, what Jesus is saying is. You won't need for me to do it because you have a direct line to the father because you are united with me. Uh, D.A. Carson, as he's commentating uh, on this passage, I think he makes a quick line, but it, it clears things up. He says these verses, the ones that are vastly confusing to us sometimes, these verses are not speaking about the mechanics of prayer. So Jesus is not giving the mechanics on prayer and saying, well, step one, step two, part A, part B. Rather, Jesus is using the prayer of language to say something greater to the disciples, particularly about the life that is to come to them after the resurrection. To wrap it all up, basically what Jesus is saying is that those who are are united with him, those united with Christ, which are those who believe and love him, have access to God to ask him anything. This idea of whatever, asking him anything, it points towards God's benevolence and willingness to give his children all they need for both life and godliness. So Jesus is pointing to the great access we have in him to go in prayer and both the ability to pray and the answer to the prayer that we ask of him. It brings us great joy to know that we have a father who hears us. Another way to put it, I know there's a story about John F. Kennedy, and probably other presidents probably did the same thing during these great meetings. Sometime his children would bus in the door and come in during these great meetings. You can think of other presidents or you think of kings, and the idea is this. Who really has access to bus into a great meeting of a king or, or of a president or any other, other governing official? The only ones who have access are the children. Meetings Meetings stop. Those with great power too, particularly during times of monarchies who could have someone's head chopped because you interrupted the great meeting of the king. The children have access. Children can interrupt their father. Because that's how much a father loves his children. This is the idea as Jesus is using the language of prayer. This is what Jesus is saying is post the resurrection. When all this is made clear, the great access you'll have to the father because you love the father and the father loves you. The great joy you have, and praying to the great King, and knowing that He hears, and He answers. So Jesus points to the great joy that they'll have after the resurrection. Jesus points to the great joy they have in prayer, and then finally, Jesus talks about the great peace that they'll have. The rest of the disciples at this point, they they kind of sound like Peter. Hmm? Multiple times we've said before how Peter is one who opens up his big mouth. But now all the disciples kind of sound like Peter because after Jesus has described to them the great access they're going to have to the father post the resurrection in verse 29 and kind of following those verses, the disciples all say, well, now we get it. Now, Now you're speaking plainly. Now we believe in you. We know what you mean. We know that you have come from God. The language that is used there is the disciples are now basically confident they they get it all and yet they still don't actually get it all the arrest hasn't happened yet the crucifixion hasn't happened yet the resurrection hasn't happened yet but they have great confidence but jesus being wise he kind of tempers their confidence in verse 30 says do you now believe it can be taken as a question or statement the esv if you have the esv it it takes it as a question. Jesus basically asks him, You believe now? Now, he's not questioning their faith. There is the reality that the disciples have faith in Jesus and what he has come to do, but their faith is incomplete because they have not seen it all yet. And so, Jesus is not really questioning their faith and saying, You don't believe. Rather, what Jesus is saying is, If you think this is good, if you think what I have just said about your access you have with the Father is good, wait until all this is finished. The resurrection is going to, for lack of better words, it's going to blow your mind. Jesus tempers their overconfidence, shall we say. And He continues to tell them what is going to come. And they're going to continue to be bewildered by what is to come. Jesus tempers them by asking them, do you really believe now? But then he also tells them the reality of what's going to happen. He says tempered down because the time is going to come and is now is what Jesus said, basically saying it's coming very soon. When he will be taken. And the disciples will be scattered to their home. They're going to be afraid and confused They're going to be scattered to their homes, trying to figure out, well, what's next? Do we go back to fishing? Are the religious leaders going to come and get us? Do we just quit? Do we try to carry on in our own strength, the work that Jesus has started? Jesus don't be overconfident. You're going to be scattered. But he brings comfort to them. And the words of comfort that he gives to the disciples who are confused, bewildered, and will be scattered, he brings comfort to them with a word of peace. His word of peace is also a word of triumph. At the end of our verses, verse 33, Jesus says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's ironic that Jesus ends his words before the high priestly prayer in John 17. He ends his words with a word of triumph, even though he knows for sure that his arrest and death is coming. And he says they will have peace. On one hand, we know what peace is it's the lack of enmity between us and God, that Jesus, through his work and his resurrection, he closes the gap for us, and there's no longer we're no longer enemies of God, but we're his children. That's one type of peace, and that's a true peace, but I think there's a different type of peace that that peace gives to us, even in the here and now. I think what Jesus is saying is this type of peace that you'll have in the midst of tribulation is the peace of having hope, confidence and a surety in the face of difficulty face of death that disciples will come against the fear of death at times this peace that Jesus gives to them this great hope and confidence in a world that's going to try to come against them as much as they can and this peace is connected to the overcoming work of Christ in other words, the disciples can be assured that Christ has overcome because of the resurrection that is coming. If Christ can overcome the grave, then there's, there's no worries for them to actually have. They'll face difficulties, but if their Lord can overcome death itself, everything else is small to the disciples. One commentary put it like this, and he makes a great note. He says, we know that there's a great change in the disciples as we go through the four Gospels and see the way they look, scared, terrified, confused, particularly during their arrests and the crucifixion. They're running away from Jesus. Peter denies Jesus multiple times. When we see them in the Gospels, they don't look very good. But then when we see them in Acts, preaching with power, Speaking to kings. Proclaiming the gospel. To thousands of people. We see the great confidence they have. We see the great peace that they have. In the midst of the tribulation. They will come against in the book of Acts. But there's a difference. Between the the apostles. From the four gospels. To the peace and the confidence. And the hope they have. In the book of Acts. It's clear that. The disciples have peace. It's clear also that they have great joy in the midst of difficulty in this world. To kind of close up and finish up the sermon, we have to be honest, as we kind of said before, or at least I'll be honest, there's great difficulty, particularly in reading these texts, where Jesus is telling his disciples about the arrests and his death coming. It's difficult for us to read it because sometimes we go, at least when I read it, why are they so unsure? And that's because of where we stand on the timeline of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We stand post the resurrection and ascension. And so we can't put ourselves, at least it's difficult sometimes, to put ourselves in the place of the disciples who are confused, who will be scattered and who are unsure about all the things that Jesus has taught them. The best way I can put it, now, I have to use a movie, so I apologize for those who don't like watch too many movies. Uh, but a- at work, this is what we do during lunch break. We eat food and we talk about movies. And we actually talked about this one movie, and I, th- I said, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to use that during a sermon. <laughs> and everybody said, you got to be kidding me, right? I go, no, I'll use it. We'll see what happens. <laughs> There's a movie uh, called The Book of Eli. Now, I'm going to tell you what the movie is. You had plenty of time to watch it, so... I don't feel bad if I'm going to tell you the premise of the movie, but I think there mi- there, there's a point to be made in the movie. Essentially, the book of Eli is a a, a movie that's in a, dis- a very much dystopian world. Even the grays in the movie just make you feel very depressed. And it's Denzel Washington, who essentially is an expert swordsman. And the whole premise of the movie, at least in a nutshell, is that Denzel Washington has to basically protect this sacred text. Now, it's kind of bible-ish because he quotes from it it sounds very old testament prophet like but it's not the bible but it's a sacred text that's bible-ish and that the whole point is he's an expert sportsman who has to protect to get this book to where it's supposed to go now you get to the end of the movie and the aha moment is the fact that the book is in braille denzel washington has memorized basically the whole book because he's blind so now the aha moment of the movie is completely over So it's hard to actually go back and watch the book of Eli anymore. It's a great movie, but really it's kind of it seems kind of boring because it's like, yeah, he's he's blind and killing everybody. The aha moment is over. And so just the movie isn't as great the second time around. I think that's kind of where we stand when it comes to reading the gospel sometimes. Because we're past the aha moment. We're not in the midst of being unsure of what's going to happen to Jesus. What does he mean? Even as we talked about in the beginning, what does he mean a little while he's going to be taken away and a little while he's going to come see us again and so forth and so on? It's difficult for us to watch that movie again because of where we stand on the timeline of the resurrection. We already know what's happened and we live in the present hope and reality that Christ has already come. But I do think there is something that clearly we can learn, even though it may be difficult. We are unlike the disciples. We are not awaiting the arrest and death of Jesus Christ. But we are awaiting his return. It's not a one to one connection between us and the disciples, but there is something there for us to learn as the disciples are bewildered, waiting for the arrest. They don't know the arrest is coming, but they're waiting for what Jesus is talking about. Essentially, his arrest and his death and resurrection. We Live in the midst of the world that has tribulation as we await the return of our Lord. And I think the point of what Jesus would be saying to us now, because even as Paul would say in Romans, this is for our benefit. Now, the scriptures are not just for the historical reality, though, that is vastly important. It's for our benefit in the current present day. Is that as we live in the midst of tribulation. We now can have joy. And and peace one in a world that tries at least attempts to come against the gospel of jesus christ but also we can have joy and peace in a midst of a world that has shall we say common tribulation as jesus would say the rain falls on the just and the unjust but the way we wait for our Lord's return is different from the world. The world, because I think our ability to have joy and peace in the midst of tribulation can serve as a great apologetic to the surrounding world. As much as Peter would say, we're called to have a reason for the hope within us, to have answers for questions that others may have about the faith, and we're called to have it. Our lives themselves, the ability to have joy and peace in the midst of tribulation now, can serve as an apologetic to to the surrounding world. Our world, at least our particular culture, is one that honestly lacks joy. We've talked about joy this morning. If you missed Renee's Sunday school, we don't record it, so you're just out of luck. (laughs) The world around us, it's a joyless world. And the ironic thing is that it's a joyless world, and yet we're probably the most spoiled people in all of history. We're spoiled, but joyless. And not only do we live in the world in a culture that is joyless, and we try to work up joy and happiness by doing things for ourselves and the trinkets that come with this world, we're joyless, but we also don't have peace in this world once again, to live in a culture and a society where we have everything right in front of us, and yet we're full of anxiety, full of depression, always worried about what's coming ahead of us. For the Christian to have joy and peace because of the overcoming work of Christ is an apologetic Theology professor, Chad Bird, he writes this and Twitter's good for something because that's where I found it out. I'm not going to lie to you and said I read a whole book. I just went to his Twitter page and it was good. But this is what he writes. He talks about both the world and the church. And I know life like this in a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. Families crumble. Marriages decay. Hopes of a bright future are eclipsed by disaster. People we thought we could trust stab us in the back. Bills rise while paychecks fall. Stress skyrockets and sleep evades us. And for us, churches close, pastors weep in the dark, and our gasping faith struggles to survive. In a world like that, the world may need more is to look at the church of Jesus Christ because we're going through the same struggles they are. We're no better than the rest of the world. We have joy. We have peace. But we have it for a specific reason. We don't look to ourselves for our own joy and peace to bubble up from somewhere inside. We look to the overcoming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And even more when he got off the cross. So to the world, this is our proclamation. And this is our own proclamation to ourselves as, world, as well. To the world that works hard to thwart the gospel. And to all that attempt to usurp the authority of Christ. Jesus says. I have overcome the world. To those who are burdened by the effects of sin in this world, oppressed, depressed, and held down, and who see no real hope in this life, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do thank you. We thank you that by your death and resurrection, you have overcome. And we as your church. By the work you have done and the power of your spirit. We are called more than overcomers. and More than conquerors. Through you who love us. And so Lord help us by your spirit. Help us your church. To be a light in a dark world to show off the hope and the joy and peace that the world does not know apart from you. We bless you, our great God. Amen.